Well, it's good to be with everyone here at Gospel of Grace. I know many of our hearts are saddened at what we see happening in Israel today. Um, I was going to initially do a message in Proverbs. In fact, I came in the door, and you'll have a Proverbs handout, but what I'm going to do is be finishing my lecture that I did last time in Sunday school on the restoration of Israel. Uh, Bob said, are you going to be finishing the material on Israel? It would be great because of the issues going on, and like a dunce, I hadn't thought of that. Um, So I do. I'll finish talking about a lot of material we never got to finish regarding the future restoration of Israel. Uh, Last night, I know many of you have been thinking about what's happening there, and I thought the bitter irony is we have an administration that funds terrorists that attack Israel, and half the church around the world can't even define what all Israel is in the scriptures. And yet, because God is sovereign and he's all-powerful, Israel's going to stand. And the kingdom is coming to Israel. And the reason we should be excited for it and zealous for it is because it's our kingdom. It's not just their kingdom, but as Bob has taught us so well in Ephesians 2.15, there's one new man. Jew and Gentile believers are going to have a kingdom headquartered in Israel. And so, again, let me just come to a section of scripture that we left off on last time we were in Sunday school together. And because I was somewhat in a hurry, I didn't get to even plumb all the depths of this. And because the scriptures are far beyond me, I never will be able to plumb all the depths of this passage. But let's read this again. This is kind of where we left off. And then we'll hit some other items in this text that we didn't get to talk about last time. Romans eleven twenty five through 28. Remember, this is the crescendo of Paul's argument. In Romans 9 through 11, he has to prove that in God, indeed God will be faithful to the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because at the end of Romans 8, God made promises to us. The promises that nothing could ever separate us from the love of Christ. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, or powers. Things to come, things that were past, things that are present. There's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from glory. That we're heading for resurrection and this glory. So the natural, the natural question the person of God would ask is, well, yes, that sounds great, but what about the promises God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? So from Romans chapter 9 to 11, Paul answers, what about those promises? And if you remember in Romans 9, one of the big issues that Paul lays out was that not every single ethnic Israelite was in fact part of the elect. That's back in Romans 9, 6. When you get into Romans chapter 10, Paul will lay out at the end that God had a promise for both Jews and Gentiles. Okay, but then in Romans chapter 11, he starts to shift to show that there will be indeed a national restoration of Israel. Therefore, God is faithful to his promises literally. The promises that God gives aren't spiritually fulfilled in a figurative sense. They are literally fulfilled. When it was promised that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, he wasn't born in a city that was somewhat like Bethlehem. He was born in Bethlehem. In Isaiah 7.14, when the promise is that the virgin would give birth to a son, it wasn't that there was a woman who, you know, was kind of like a virgin and she gave, no, she was a virgin and she gave birth to a son. Um, When it says that in Zechariah 11.12 that the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, he was literally betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. And on and on we could go. It's literal. And so that's what we're going to find out. There's going to be a literal restoration of Israel. And so in this text, what we're wrestling with, let me pull up my pointer. Notice in blue, we're wrestling with who is all Israel. And what I'm contending is that all Israel must be national ethnic Israel for three primary reasons. When you and I do exegesis, in other words, we're trying to take out from the scriptures what is actually there, rather than performing something called eisegesis, where we're reading into the text something that isn't there, people often rightly say context is king. But it's always the immediate context that's most important. And so what I mean by that is think about you're interpreting any given passage What you want to do is start with that given passage. That's the immediate context. Then branch out within the same author, Paul, in the same book, in the surrounding chapters. Then branch out into the other books by the same author. 
then branch out into the other New Testament epistles, gospels, and then go from there to the rest of the scriptures, even the Old Testament. But it's the immediate context that always matters most. And what's been shocking to me as I've been debating people, I mean probably now hundreds of people online over this issue, is when I bring up these two exegetical facts, and I'm dealing with people who claim all Israel is the church and not national ethnic Israel, I bring up two facts and they go silent. They don't ever debate anymore. First of all, notice all Israel was partially hardened. So whoever Israel is, they were partially hardened. Now, what does it mean to be partially hardened? Well, of course, what Paul's referring to is that there was a partial hardening over national ethnic Israel. Would it make any sense to say there was a partial hardening over believers of Jesus Christ? Well, of course not. Because the way that you became a believer in Jesus Christ, part of the church, is that the hardening over your heart was removed. So by definition, if you're part of the church, you're in no way hardened. You have a regenerated heart. In fact, that's the whole point of regeneration. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say that Jesus is Lord except what? By the Spirit. Bob has been showing us in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 25 that the bondservant of God, that is a pastor, but by extension, all Christians should be able to teach and gentle in correction. He says, perhaps God may grant them repentance. Well, why would God have to grant it if it's an innate ability for all humans? Well, it's not an innate ability that all humans have to repent or believe. Remember, repentance and faith are two sides of the same salvific coin. If you've repented, you're changing your mind. Meto no ao, meta, after, no ao, thought. It's like an afterthought. It's a change of mind. You're changing from unbelief and you're turning to belief. So if you have saving faith, it's because you've repented. And if you're repenting, you're repenting unto saving faith. They go hand in hand. Now, there's more nuance to each, but they go hand in hand. So if God grants repentance, he's granting faith. He's granting salvation in 2 Timothy 2.25. So that is something that is the opposite of hardening. Therefore, partial hardening cannot ever be said of the church. Okay, so that's one verse prior to all Israel. Second point, notice all Israel, whoever they are, notice in verse 28 it says, they are enemies for your sake. Notice this phrase, for your sake. Why does he say that? Because Paul is writing to those who are Gentiles, and because there was a partial hardening on ethnic Israel, it worked out for the benefit of the Gentiles since God's redemptive attention, as it were, turned towards the Gentiles. That will last until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, as Jesus foretold in Luke 21, 24. Okay, in fact, does everyone see the until? Back here, there's a partial hardening that happened to Israel until. I mentioned that Bob DeWay rightly says that you can't have an until for a non-event. Well, Paul is taking this until from Luke 21, 24, where Jesus teaches that there will be Jerusalem trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. And so the point is there's going to be a future restoration. Why? Because the until cannot refer to something that never comes. The same thing is being referred to here, that there's a partial hardening, obviously, over national ethnic Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So when it talks about they are enemies for your sake, it's for the benefit of the believer. Now, notice also in verse 28, he says, from the standpoint, write this down if you're a note taker, write down kata, K-A-T-A. That's the Greek preposition that is being used there by Paul, and it's being rendered from the standpoint. Kata, that preposition, is often either a preposition of standard or a preposition of reference. Okay, now why is that important? Well, I think here it's probably being used as a preposition of reference because what Paul is saying is with, re, with reference to the gospel, they are enemies. 
Now, why is that important? Because what Paul is saying is they're not enemies in the sense they're going to get a rifle and go attack you physically. They're not enemies in the sense that they even hate you necessarily as a a different country uh, would hate another country. It's not a physical warfare per se. Sometimes the animosity against the gospel leads to that. But that's not his point. His point is regarding the gospel, they are opposed to it. Well, how can all Israel be the church and be opposed to the gospel? How can all the church, if, if all Israel is the church comprised of believing Jews and Gentiles, how can they be enemies with respect to the gospel? It's an absurdity. And so I've been asking, I asked Vodi Bakum on his website, how can all Israel be the church in light of the fact that they are partially hardened one verse earlier and two verses later, they're enemies concerning the gospel. No answer. Next website, ask the question, no answer. Next website, no answer. Do you know why? Because there's no answer. All Israel is just what it says. It's national, ethnic Israel. Yes, I'm not postmodern. I believe that we can come to true interpretations. Dear ones, if that weren't enough, the immediate context, back up nine verses, I'm sorry, not nine verses, nine usages of the term Israel, going back to Romans 9.27. If you count the usage of Israel in Romans 9.27, and you go all the way to Romans 11.26, there's nine usages of Israel. Each one of them is obviously a reference to national ethnic Israel. So that's another question I throw out there. I I ask those who believe all Israel here to be the church, can you show me one example where Israel is really referring to the church? Just show me one in that section. They go silent. And so then I say, I even write, when I'm typing, I say, if you don't show me an example, I'll have to assume you agree with me. So after they go silent, I say, okay, now that you've agreed with me, can you show me one contextual clue that all of a sudden Paul, in the midst of his writing, is now shifting to talk about the church when nine times in a row he's used Israel to refer to national ethnic Israel. They can't do it. They, they don't have the immediate context. They don't have the surrounding context. What it means is they're reading into the text eisegesis rather than doing exegesis. If you have a theology that's based on eisegesis, You have a theology based on feelings rather than what's been revealed by God. You have a theology of imagination rather than scriptural inspiration. That's what must be rejected. And so, yes, Brian. The Romans 9.27 that you just referred to, that's from the book of Isaiah where he's saying that... uh, the sons of Israel would be like sands, uh, but there would be a remnant. So he even says it's a remnant. Exactly right. And so the idea then is, if you can conceptually think in your mind, this is a point that Paul also makes in Romans 9, 6, when he says not all Israel is Israel. Some people think falsely that Paul is saying, well, there's some Gentiles involved. There are Gentiles that are going to be partakers of the kingdom, but that's not his point. In Romans 9, 6, what Paul is saying, and also in Romans 9, 27, is if you conceptually think of a circle, and think within that circle, it represents every national ethnic Israelite, every one of them that's ever been born. What Paul is saying is that the actually elect is a smaller circle within that wider circle. So it was never every national ethnic Israelite there's an elect within the national ethnic boundary. So that's why in Romans 9... Paul says, look at Abraham. Abraham had two sons. He had Isaac and Ishmael. Was Ishmael part of the elect? No, it was Isaac. Well, wait a minute. Ishmael's a descendant physically of Abraham. Doesn't matter. He's not of the elect. Then it goes, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Both descendants of Abraham, but Jacob is the one in the lineage of the promise, not Esau. Okay, so again, that proves to us that, yes, we're thinking right that in Romans 9, 6, when he says, not all Israel is Israel. He's not talking about Gentile inclusion. He's talking about out of all of the Israelites who have ever been born, national ethnic Israelites based on the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's a smaller group that's actually the elect. 
Why is that important? Because it proves God's elect purposes have not failed. Are you with me? He's always been faithful to that. So the point is, though, when we go from Romans 9.27, as Brian just brought up, Israel is being used certainly for national ethnic Israel. In fact, that's what he's using it for even in Romans 9.6. Okay? So there's no contextual reason why all Israel is not national ethnic Israel. One more thing I want to focus on, and I'll keep moving because there's so many things that we want to talk about here. But I want to really focus here on Isaiah 59.20. I want everyone to see this because once you see it, you can't unsee it, and you're going to be blown away. Uh, Notice it says, he's citing Isaiah 59.20, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Let me talk about this text. It's exceedingly rich. I believe, notice this phrase where he says the deliverer will come from Zion. First of all, if you turn to your... In fact, everyone turn to your Bibles to the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah 59.20. We have time because we're going to go slow today. I want, to, I want everyone to see this. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 59.20. And I believe the term that's used in the Masoretic text for the deliverer is actually the redeemer, Goel. So remember, the, the Goel, the redeemer, is the one who purchases that which is lost. Okay? So very fitting description of the Messiah who redeems his people, who redeems and restores the promises of Israel. Well, notice in Isaiah 59, 20, it says the deliverer will come to Zion. Does everyone see that in the text? It's not that he's going to come from Zion, and there are different prepositions in the Hebrew where to and from would be distinguished. So the Masoretic text is certainly showing us that the Deliverer or the Redeemer will come to Zion. Why is Paul changing it to from Zion? Well, some people will claim Paul is just playing fast and loose and he just was being somewhat haphazard about his quotation. I don't think so. I think it's very deliberate. And the reason he's being deliberate is what he is showing is that Zion is in fact a reference to the heavenly Zion. And so what he's doing is he is showing that the Messiah in his first advent, yes, he came to Zion, but now at his second advent, he is coming from the heavenly Zion that is what the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, proof of this is turn your Bibles, if I recall, it's Hebrews 12.22. Yes, Hebrews 12.22. Turn your Bibles there. What I'm going to do is I'm going to lay out the case that from Zion is a reference to the Messiah coming from heaven. Why is that important? Because it's really a reference to the parousia of Christ, the rapture. The rapture and the coming of Christ. And remember the parousia. Well, I don't want to put too many concepts on you. I'll just hold off on that. We'll just turn to Hebrews 12, 22. Notice here, it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. That is certainly what Paul's referring to here. Let's look at one more verse to verify. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 1.10. We are waiting for Christ to come from where? From heaven. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul says, to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Well, when does the wrath come? It comes at the 70th week of Daniel. So if he's going to rescue us from the wrath to come, we're rescued prior to the 70th week of Daniel. That's when the rapture occurs. So what he's saying then is that the deliverer will come from Zion. That's about his second advent. Now, here's something I want to lay out. I've been teaching this in my eschatology class there's a technical term for the parousia, or for the coming of Christ. It's the term parousia. If you're to transliterate that into English, it's P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Right, get that term down because it's the term that's used as the technical term for the coming of Christ. It's used 17 times in the New Testament for Christ's coming. What you must know is that the parousia is not depicted as a one-day event. And I've proven this in my eschatology class where I show a relationship between Luke 11, I'm sorry, Luke 17:26 and Matthew 24:37. 
They're identical in the Greek. Matthew 24, 37 says, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the parousia, singular, of the Son of Man. Luke 17, 26. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the, in the days, plural, of the Son of Man. Do you notice that in Luke 17, 26, it's days, plural. It's the only difference. Listen carefully. Don't glaze over. Get this. Luke 17, 26, Matthew 24, 37, identical. Identical in the Greek. Identical. Except one difference. Luke 17, 36 says days, plural, of the Son of Man. Matthew 24, 37, it's the parousia, singular, of the Son of Man. What that tips you off to is that the singular parousia, the coming of Christ, is a plurality of days. Four times the term parousia is used in Matthew 24, the Olivet Discourse. It's used in Matthew 24, 4. It's used in Matthew 24, 27. It's used in Matthew 24, 37. It's used in Matthew 24, 39. What is Matthew 24 about? It's about the 70th week of Daniel. How do I know that? Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, So when you see the abomination that causes desolation. When is that? Is that in the church age? No, that's a reference to Daniel 9.27. That's the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. Jesus says in Matthew 24.21, there will be tribulation upon the world such as never occurred nor ever will. Well, that's the worst time period ever. Is the worst time period ever during the church age or in the future 70th week of Daniel? How many know that you've never had a third of all the oceans turn to blood? That's in Revelation chapter 8. How about a third of all ships destroyed in the world? How about a third of humanity die because of a demonic horde? That sounds like the worst ever, and that's never occurred. Therefore, it's in our future. Therefore, we know the 70th week of Daniel is the future. We know that Matthew 24 is about that time period. And what we know because he's used the parousia four times, it's also about the parousia. Comparing Luke 17, 26, Matthew 24, 37, we know the parousia is a plurality of days. So therefore, we know that the parousia, the plurality of days, is synonymous with the 70th week of Daniel. What we're seeing here, then, is that the deliverer will come from Zion, and what is he going to do? He's going to remove ungodliness from Jacob at the parousia. So beginning at the midpoint, God brings the people into the wilderness in the 70th week of Daniel. Why? Because the promise in Hosea is that one day God would bring the people into the wilderness and they would finally trust in him. God brought them into the wilderness the first time, the first exodus, didn't believe, er, went bad. John the Baptist shows up in the Gospels. Where does he meet the people? In the wilderness. Where, are they going to believe, er, goes bad? So bad that Jesus, the glory of God, departs from the temple. He ascends just like happened in Ezekiel's day. The glory of God departed the temple. Why? Because the people didn't believe. But Jesus is going to return in the parousia, He's going to bring the people into the wilderness the last three and a half years, and they come to faith. They come to faith in the Messiah at the parousia. That's what this is referring to. And so, yes, there's a great plan of salvation, and it's not going to happen during the church age for the Jews. Remember, Jerusalem must be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. As you look at your news today, the big picture you want to see is the time of the Gentiles are still going on. Jerusalem is being trampled underfoot. Israel is. Why? Because we're not out of the time of the Gentiles. That's the issue. Yes, Bob. Something that's helped me understand this, yes. and sometimes explain it, is that some might think, well, aren't you getting a little technical? The parousia is a complex event. It's not just one thing. Yeah. But you know, the first advent is also referred to in the same way. Exactly. Messiah came. Okay? And, uh, but the event of the first advent was very much complex. Yes, great It goes point. all the way from the, the virgin birth. Yeah. The, the, the things that are fulfilled. I, I looked up the other day two different words in the whole of Matthew yeah. in order that it might be fulfilled. And I think another... Remember which one the other one was, but it had to do with fulfilled prophecy. Oh, it is written. Yes. So I look for those two things. It's in some detail throughout Matthew. Yes, absolutely. So all of the details of the first advent are still part of the event of the first advent. Yes. 
But the process was, well, really started in eternity, but on earth, yep. from the virgin birth, all the way through his ascension into heaven. Amen. It's still first advent. Exactly. It's a and complex still event. a coming. Yes. And so we're not creating fiction by saying there's such a thing as a singular event that's complex. That's right. And even if you talk about Christ's death on the cross, still a con even that part of it is complex. Amen. Okay, you have the trial, the beating, the, yeah. the time, you know, on the cross, the dying, the mockery, all the details. Look yeah. at the details were fulfilled in that. That's right. In order to might be fulfilled. Wow, yeah. Okay, and then his, the tomb, he laid a rich man's tomb that's invented in scripture. Yeah. So people shouldn't be surprised. The amillennials, and you're about as good as anybody I've met at refuting them. Yeah. They, uh, they will just say, oh, it's all too complex. Just make it one big thing. Yeah. Throw out all the details, throw out the significance of Israel. And this is just the church. And there's no future judgment or, that we can see in the Bible. That's right. The post-millennialists, anyhow. And at some point, Christ will come back. That's right. Well, so then that's real nice and easy. But it doesn't comport with how first advent prophecy was fulfilled that we already know. Amen. And Amen. so they might as well take Matthew and say, well, Matthew was being too detailed. Yes. In what already happened. Right. So they have no contextual clue to prove that the second advent is going to lose all its details. That's right. The first one had plenty of them. Wow. Well said. That's exactly right. Thank you, Bob. That's exactly right. The first advent is a complex event, so is the second advent. It's not just on one day. That's how we should understand the parousia. And when you put the data together, it's the 70th week of Daniel. It begins with the rapture, coming, Christ coming for the church. It ends with him establishing Israel, him coming with the church. That's the way it is. It's the, but all of it's the parousia. That's how it's rendered. Now, one thing I want to point out is notice here, it says, when I take away their sins. We as... I would, I'd hate to use the term dispensational, but that's the view of eschatology that I have, dispensational premillennial. Oftentimes people will say, well, wait a minute, Eric, you believe in two different plans of salvation, one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles. No, I do not. Salvation has always been by faith alone. Whether it was Abraham looking forward to the cross or it's you and I looking back to the cross, there's one plan of salvation, one Savior, and it's always been by faith alone. What this text is telling you is that one day Israel is going to be brought to faith. That's the expectation of Zechariah 12.10. Another verse that you want to jot down is Zechariah 12.10. Uh, by the way, Zechariah 12 through 14 forms a unit. In Zechariah 12.10, the promise is that God was going to pour out a spirit of supplication upon Israel, and that would lead them to mourn upon the one whom they had pierced. The mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, is one of sadness in keeping with repentance. Well, who is the one whom they had pierced? Well, we know from the New Testament writer John, the apostle, according to John 19.37, that that is Jesus, because he cites Zechariah 12.10 partially as being fulfilled. Why does he cite it partially? He just cites that they looked upon the one whom they pierced, but he doesn't say that they mourned for him. That awaits the second advent. So we know that the Messiah is the one whom they pierced, and one day they will mourn for him, they will repent, and they will trust in him. This is exactly what Paul is teaching us. They're going to be brought to faith. And so there's not one plan of, for, of salvation for Jews and another for Gentiles. It's always been the same. What Paul is explaining is that one day the Jews will be brought to faith as well. Yes, Eric. Yeah, and just to kind of emphasize that, we only come to faith because we are granted repentance. That's what God will do to ethnic national Israel. We Amen. don't know. I mean, the ones that are Abraham's truly, his true descendants, you know, that's up to God. But it will be, he will grant them repentance. He's, there's been this partial hardening now and, and earlier. But it's the same salvation. We only come to faith because we are granted repentance. Amen. Well said, Eric. That's exactly right. Could you address... Um the current war in Israel, this will all come up 
the prophecy conferences. Yes, yes. So how is this significant in any way that other things that have happened? Yes, very good question, Bob. So if you all remember in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus talks about in Matthew 24, 4 through 6, there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The first thing Christ mentions is that there's going to be false Christ. All of the signs Jesus gives you in the Olivet Discourse are inside the future 70th week of Daniel. And I think what confuses Christians is he talks about wars and rumors of wars. And the Christian reasons, and it's not bad reasoning, but they say, wait a minute, haven't we always had wars since the beginning of time? We're going to have them during the church age. So is that what Jesus is referring to? No. The opening wars that you see in the book of Revelation, remember in Revelation chapter 6, verse 4, at the second seal, the Lord says that he took peace away from the earth. So if peace is removed, and then by the time you get to Revelation chapter 6, verse 7 through 8, you're at the fourth seal, and there's a wrath of sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Let me unpack that. The sword is warfare, and the warfare is so severe that food production breaks down around the world. That leads to famine. The famine is so severe that people are open to pestilence or disease. That's the third means. That's so bad that people are so weakened that now animals are starting to beat humankind. It won't be uncommon just to see a raccoon dragging a little baby away. That's how bad it is. And so those four things are depicting the unraveling of creation. In the beginning of creation, man has dominion over the rest of creation. In the time of God's wrath, that's being unraveled. Why? Because God gives people over to who they really are. And he's using the wrath of the nations as his wrath against one another. And do you know how many die according to that battle in Revelation 6, 8? A quarter of the earth will die in that warfare. The worst warfare that has ever come upon the planet is World War II. And I did a lot of research into this, looking at... It was really not fun research, but the mortality rates and battle and all these things. It was 3% of the population of the world died in World War II. 25% is going to die in the opening wars. In the opening wars in the 70th week of Daniel, it'll be eight times worse than World War II. That's how they function as signs. The other reason we know, again, that Matthew 24 is about the future 70th week of Daniel, as he says, this is the worst time period ever. Matthew 24, 21. You can't have the worstest. You only have one worst time period. And if your worst time period doesn't incorporate a third of the ships being destroyed, a third of the oceans turning to blood, well, then you don't have the worst time period, and that's never happened, so that's in the future. So right now, what you're seeing with the war in Israel, as Bob is referring to, is you're, th you're looking at the times of the Gentiles. There's still this mistreatment of Israel. Why? Because the Redeemer has not come from Zion. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing the age prior to the 70th week of Daniel. You and I are living in the gap between the 69th week of Daniel and the 70th week of Daniel in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. There is a gap. The amillennialist and the postmillennialist, they will say there is no gap between the 69th and the 70th week of Daniel that we goofy premillennialists are reading that into the text. Let me throw out a challenge for you. Tonight, before you go to bed, do it yourself. Don't, don't take my word for it. Read Daniel 9, 24 through 27 about the 70 weeks prophecy. And let me prove to you that there's a gap. If Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who's depicted there being cut off, if he is cut off after the 69th week and prior to the 70th week, then I'm right. If that is not indeed how you read the text then the amillennialist and the premillennialist is correct. However, when you read the text, it'll say after the 69th week, the Messiah will be cut off. And then that is before the description of the 70th week. That's what you're going to find. I'm just warning you ahead of time what you're going to find. You're going to find that there's an inherent gap in the text. You and I are living in the gap. When does the 70th week of Daniel come? You don't know. We have no idea. It could be one day from now. It could be 150 years from now. We don't know. We just know it's at hand. Yes? Uh, uh, doesn't Jesus refer to the prophecy of Daniel himself? Exactly. That's right. That's something yet future, some of it? 
Exactly. So Matthew 24, correct? 15, he says, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, and then he even says, let the reader understand. Right. So it, Jesus believed there was a gap. Exactly. Okay. He believed there was a gap. <laughs> okay. Um, I think a lot of people just want something simple. Yeah. And so they say, well, the church is Israel, and it's always been like this, and this is just too many details. And Or here's the other one I hear. Yeah. They say all these prophecy nuts are always making claiming so-and-so is the Antichrist, or, which sadly yes, happens, which exactly. shouldn't happen. Yep. And the point of what's going on right now is, and we need to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Something struck me, because I'm writing, I did a whole bunch of research on the Lord's Prayer. Yes. Because I, uh, to write an article. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer for the return of Christ. Amen. That's exactly um, Praying for the peace of Jerusalem is a prayer for the return of Christ. Amen. That's when it happens. And uh, so it's interesting that the Lord's Prayer and the prayer that we're given, you know, uh, in, in the Old Testament yes. has to do with the return of Christ. Amen. And the idea that you can have a kingdom in a post-millennial sense on the earth through a Christianized culture that has certain Christian things like there is a God and we're created and just kind of a culture. Yes. The capitalism works better, right. things like that, which we would agree with, that that's the kingdom and that's the peace of Jerusalem. That's absurd. So really what it boils down to is rejecting any details whatsoever about prophecy. Yes. And so we're looking at why the attack right now going on horrible, horrible, wicked, evil, unmeasurable evil going on yes. against Israel because Israel has always been hated because they're telling the whole world that God keeps his promises. Exactly. And that their existence is evidence that God keeps his promises. Amen. As Eric is laying out here. Amen. And that's what motivates the hatred. Yes. And it goes all the way back to Ishmael and so yes. on. It just doesn't change. That's right. But the answer isn't through getting rid of future promises. Amen. Amen. And so thank you for, for laying this all out for us. Thanks, Bob. For, thanks for the good comments. Um, yeah, it's so well said. You know, think about we're dealing with Marxism in our culture around the world. And the central tenet of Marxism is take from the haves and give to the have-nots. There's a deliberate hatred of the haves. In a real sense, the reason why Marxism plays so nicely into the end times religion is because God's people are the original haves. Cain murders Abel because Abel is a have and Cain is the have-not. What's the have and the, what do they, what does Abel have and Cain doesn't have? The blessing of God. And that is the greatest riches that anyone could ever have. And the world knows it. They hate you and I, as Bob said once, when we believe we were not only grafted into the tree, into the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we were grafted into their hatred and persecution. Why? Because we're the haves. We're the ones who have the blessings of God, the, the, the absolute assurance of everlasting life. And there's a sneaking suspicion that the pagans have that were right. I remember in the first Gulf War, a lot of people who poo-pooed the Bible, when they saw the first Gulf War, they all of a sudden had this sneaking suspicion that the Bible was right. And by the way, I'm not one who believes the signs are in the church age. I don't believe that. But they always have, when trouble comes, they have the sneaking suspicion that your Bible's really right. And there's a hatred for Israel and the people of God for that. So the, the point is, as Bob has mentioned, God is going to be faithful to his promises. And these are promises we should not reject because, again, God's glory is indeed at stake. If God is not faithful to his promises, then he is not a promise-keeping God. He is not the faithful God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Okay, with that now, let me uh, move on to this crescendo. We talked about how he says, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient. He's obviously talking about national ethnic Israel. That because of the mercy shown to you, 
they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. Stop there. Obviously, the all he's referring to is all Jews and Gentiles. Okay, meaning not every individual, but the idea of Jews and Gentiles without distinction. That's the elect. So it's the elect Jews and Gentiles. The point is it's not just Jews, it's not just Gentiles, it's Jews and Gentiles. That's the point that he's making. And now notice here the glory that he gives to God. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. I want you to think about how Paul reached a crescendo giving glory to God in the salvation of us, the church, in Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not, nor height, nor depth, nor principalities, powers, nothing in all of creation. Well, he comes to a crescendo again, giving glory to God by, by extolling his faithfulness, his wisdom, his knowledge, and his ways. And so I want you to think about the logic. Think about this. I wrote this down as a syllogism. A syllogism has two premises and a conclusion. And if they're written in valid form, the two premises and the conclusion, and the premises are true, the conclusion necessarily follows, and you know that you have a sound argument. So remember, there's a valid argument, means it's structured correctly, but it's not necessarily true, unless your premises are true. But once your premises are true, and it's in proper form, valid form, then it becomes a sound argument. The conclusion is necessarily true. So think about this. Those who attack, this is premise one, those who attack the God's promises are attacking the glory of God. Premise one. Amillennialism and postmillennialism are attacking one of God's promises, the restoration of Israel. Therefore, amillennialism and postmillennialism are an attack on the glory of God. Let me do it. The first premise, those who attack the promises of God are attacking God's glory. How did Paul give glory to God and why did he give glory to God? Because God is faithful to his promises. That's premise one. Premise two, postmillennialism and amillennialism are saying God isn't going to keep that promise literally. He's not going to. All Israel is not national ethnic Israel. It is indeed the church. Well, I think that's an attack on the promise of God. If God promised promises to national ethnic Israel, and by the way, it's not just the Old Testament now that's made these promises. It's our new covenant writers, the apostles. The Apostle Paul has signed his name in Jesus Christ's name to the promise that national ethnic Israel is going to be restored. So certainly amillennialism and postmillennialism is attacking that, saying, no, it's not. Therefore, amillennialism and postmillennialism are attacking the glory of God. Are you and I not called to contend for the faith? Absolutely. And one of the central tenets of the faith that we've held on to as reformers since the Reformation is... We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, revealed in the scriptures alone, all by God's grace alone, to the glory of God alone. What I'm saying is that when we attack the eschatological plan of God for the restoration of Israel, it's an attack on his promises, therefore it's an attack on his glory, therefore it's an attack on one of the solas of the Reformation. No Reformed theologian will come to you in America and say, today I'm going to attack the glory of God. They won't say it. But they do it by attacking the promise to Israel. That's how it happens. What kind of gospel promise do we have if it's only to be spiritually fulfilled? I was debating an amillennialist, and he says, you can't believe that Satan is actually going to be bound in a literal prison. There can be no literal prison, he says. I'm talking about the abyss. This is in Revelation 20, verse 3. And he says, you can't have a literal prison because it's spiritual. So I asked him, I said, do you believe in a heavenly city. Do you believe that when Abraham was looking for a city who had foundations, whose architect and builder was God, do you think that city is literal? Well, of course, he couldn't say no because then he's denying the existence of heaven. So he was stuck. So I said, let me get this straight. You can have a heavenly city, a spiritual city that's real, but you can't have a prison. I said, what, what basis do you have that from your exegesis? 
The city exists, but not the prison. Well, that's goofy. No, dear ones, what I'm claiming is that the only way any of us know something about the spiritual realm is that it's revealed. The particular amillennialist I was dealing with was Sam Storms. And I don't care if it's Sam Storms. I don't care who it is. No one made these men the pope of the spirit realm. The one who speaks to us and tells us what the spirit realm is, is about is God. He's the one who's revealed it to us. Okay, so yes, there is going to be oh, these literal promises. They're not just spiritually fulfilled. Okay, now I want to keep moving on. I want to show you something very exciting. I want you to see that, in fact, the apostles believed in the future restoration of Israel. Oftentimes our view that's called dispensational premillennial, the belief that not only is there going to be a literal millennial kingdom, Christ reigning upon the earth with us in our resurrected bodies, headquartered out of Jerusalem, but we also believe in a pre-trib rapture. A lot of times people will say, well, that's a brand new view. It's not. It goes back to the third century at least. Uh, we know there's a man named uh, Ephraim the Syrian. There's a man named Lee Brainerd who's actually right now writing up this man's writings from this third century. He's translating it. Um, we also know that Irenaeus, Irenaeus knew Polycarp. Polycarp knew John the Apostle. Irenaeus was premillennial. And now that Lee Brainerd is actually going through his writings, we're seeing that he also believed in being spared from the wrath of God. Now, I wouldn't say it's necessarily pre-trib. We don't know. There's not enough detail. But it's certainly being raptured prior to the wrath of God being poured out. So with that said, though, what I think we should say is we have the same eschatology that the apostles did. And that goes back to 33 AD. That's good enough for me. All right, so let's look at it. Remember Acts 1-3. It says to these, this, that is the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. And what was the topic that he was speaking to them of? <coughs> speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So stop there. By the way, I should have had a dot, dot, dot here. But the kingdom of God was the topic that Jesus spoke of for 40 days in his resurrected body with the disciples. Can you imagine the seminary these guys got? Now, what's interesting is right after that, what's the conclusion that the men who were his apostles came to? Verse 6. It says, so when they had come together, this is the apostles, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time... You're restoring the kingdom to Israel. Now, a couple things. First of all, they're asking about the timing. Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? The other thing I want you to see is that notice the term restoring. Write this down. This may be one that you want to jot down. It's apokathistimi. A-P-O-K-A-T-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. A-P-O-K-A-T-H-I-S-T-E-M-I. Literally means to cause to stand again. Apokathistimi. The reason I want you to see that is that's going to be used elsewhere when we get into Acts chapter 3. Peter is preaching about the restoration of Israel again. Okay? So notice they're talking about the Messiah coming and causing the Davidic kingdom to stand once again in Israel. That's what they're saying. Now, what I want you to understand is when Jesus answers their question, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus does not correct their misunderstanding if, in fact, there was a misunderstanding. In other words, if the apostles got it wrong that the kingdom is not coming to Israel, Jesus, who is God himself, is obligated to straighten them out. How do I know that? Well, for example, let's look at John 14. Remember John 14, 1 through 3? In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is morally obligated as the God who cannot lie to correct his disciples. Does he say to his disciples, wait a minute, guys, where did you get this idea after 40 days of instruction that the kingdom is coming to Israel? You guys are flunkies. That's it, F. No, he doesn't say that. He says what? It's not for you to know what the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Notice they were not to know when. 
the kingdom's coming to Israel, but they're not to know when. That's exactly what Jesus taught in the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, 36, he begins to answer the first question, when will these things be the 70th week of Daniel? He's talking about the beginning of the 70th week. From Matthew 24, 4, all the way to verse 35, he answers the second question, what are the signs? So all the signs are from Matthew 24, 4 to 35. This is why people don't read the Olivet Discourse well. Because when you get to verse 36, he uses Perry Day, a discourse marker, saying, hey, I've switched topics now. Now I'm going to answer the first question, when will these things be? And he says four different ways you don't know. You can't know. You have no idea. It's like a thief. It's like a master who's gone. You don't know when he's going to return. It's like the days of Noah. Sudden destruction came upon them. The idea is you can't know. So you and I will never know when, but we know that. What's the difference between the believer and the unbeliever? It's not that we know when and they don't. They don't know when, we don't know when. We believe that it's coming. They don't believe that it's coming. So it's not that you and I believe when it's coming or know when it's coming. It's that we believe that it's coming. That's how you're ready because you trust in the promises of God. You're a believer in Christ. Okay, so yes, there's going to be a restoration of Israel. Isn't it interesting? Second sermon with Peter. Peter says, therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. There's a lot in this text, but I want to focus for our purposes just on restoration. Here Peter's talking about, again, notice the until. Until, you can't have an until for a a non-existent event. So Jesus says, Luke 21, 24, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul says, Romans 11.26, or I'm sorry, 11.25, there's going to be a partial hardening over Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay? Here you have another until. Heaven must receive Jesus. He must stay there until what? Until what? Well, the, the time period for the restoration that the disciples had just asked about in Acts 1.6 is going to come about. By the way, the term restoration there is apokatastases. Say that five times. Apokatastases. That's a noun. The cognate verb apokathistomy is used in Acts 1.6. It's the same thing. Now, how prevalent is this idea of restoration? Remember, I'm sorry, Acts 1.6. Are you restoring? That's apokathistomy. Here's restoration, apokatastases. It's the same idea. There's going to be a restoration of the kingdom to Israel. Yes, Eric. Yes, amen. You know, you have to almost ignore Old Testament prophecy concerning, I mean, to to believe that Israel is all done and that God is done with Israel, you, you have to just ignore or be completely ignorant of, oh, there's so much prophecy in the Old Testament. You know, it's just, this is so abundantly true. Well said. Absolutely. The promises are overwhelming. And yes, there's going to be a literal rain. You know, think about, um, I was dealing with this Vodi Bakum online, and he claimed that how can you be premillennial and tell people that they're not going through tribulation in the future when they're going through so much of it now? And my answer to that is there's a distinction between what man can do to you now and what God does to you later in the 70th week of Daniel. There's a difference between Acts 14.22, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's during the church age. But the wrath of God that comes, we've been promised exemption. So after I explained that, I said, we have a lot easier time explaining that than you as the amillennialist explaining to the parent that we're right now reigning with Christ. Tell the child, the, the, the parents of the children that were murdered by the transgendered murderer how many months ago that the swords have been beaten into plowshares and the spears into pruning hooks. Tell that to Israel now. Go tell that to the Israelite. Why don't you go preach your amillennialism and your postmillennialism that the swords have been beaten into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, and the nations will no longer learn war. How hollow of a gospel is that? But see, our gospel, the true gospel which has the good news not just of what Christ has done, but what he's going to do, says not only is he going to literally raise us from the dead, 
He's going to literally and bodily reign from Jerusalem and subdue all of the enemies. That, to me, sounds like a lot better plan. And it's the plan that's revealed in the scriptures. And so, amen, Eric. That's exactly right. Um, Let me show you. It's all over the place that we have here in Jeremiah. Notice Jeremiah 31, related to the new covenant promise. By the way, we're grafted into the new covenant prior to national ethnic Israel. I'm not denying that we're not partakers of it. Certainly are. There's one new man, Jew and Gentile. This kingdom that's coming to Israel is ours, but notice the promise. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Once again, oops, I keep hitting a button. They will speak this word to the land of Judah in the cities when I restore their fortunes. The Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. Notice there's going to be a restoration. A restoration of the kingdom of David. Jeremiah 32, 44. Men will buy fields for money, sign and seal deeds, and call in witnesses. The land of Benjamin, in the environs of Jerusalem, in the cities of Judah, in the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the lowland, in the cities of the Negev. But I, excuse me, for I will restore their fortunes, declares the Lord. Let's stop there for just a moment. I want to make a connection for you. There's going to be a restoration, literally, of the nation of Israel. It's not figurative. Go to Revelation, jot these verses down. Jot down Revelation 5.10 and then just listen. Revelation 5.10, you have a throne room scene. The promise from the elders that are reigning in heaven. This is from the angelic realm. They promise that we as believers shall reign upon the earth. So what's the expectation from the throne room in Revelation 5? We shall reign where? Upon the earth. Where? Upon the earth. The term reign there is basuluo. It literally means to become king. You're going to reign. Okay? The next time Basiluo is used for believers in Revelation is found in Revelation 20, verse 4. So the next time the term for reign, Basiluo, Revelation 5:10, is used for believers, is Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, where it says, And they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What's the expectation? We're going to reign upon the earth. That's the last time the term reign was used. Do you know what Sam Storms the Amillennialist says? Oh, yes, there are Christians that they're reigning in now in heaven. The ones who have died, they're reigning in heaven. Wait a minute. The expectation, if you read what the text says, is that we shall reign upon the earth. Where is Jesus going to reign? Well, it's upon the earth. So this restoration is not only literal in the Old Testament... It is literal in the New Testament. It's not spiritual. You're not going to be some ethereal, ghost-like figure strumming a harp on a cloud. You're going to be in your resurrected body, reigning with Christ on the earth from a resurrected, in the restored Israel. Let me just throw one more fact out there. If you're in Revelation 20, verse 4, go five verses ahead to the battle of Gog and Magog. Remember, we've reigned with Christ for a thousand years. God releases Satan at the end of the thousand years and he brings, Satan brings all the enemies of God against us, us, the believers. And it says in Revelation 20, verse 9, they came up upon the broad plain of the earth and they surrounded the saints in the beloved city. So Revelation 5, 10, they shall reign upon the earth. Next time Basilu is used for reign, Revelation 20, verse 4, they reigned with Christ for a thousand years, were on the earth, Five verses later, Revelation 20, verse 9, where do the enemies come against us? It's on the earth. In fact, it's the beloved city, which is Jerusalem. Where's the reference to heaven? That's what I'd like to know. Some amillennialist and postmillennialist show me one example of where we're in heaven there. Do you know what? They go silent again. Do you know why? Because there isn't a reference to heaven. It's on the earth. This restoration is real. It's really going to happen. It's not spiritually fulfilled. It's literally fulfilled. That's what I want you to see. It's not just Old Testament. It's new as well. Look, at it's all over the place. Notice, I'll just show you the restore. He's going to restore the fortunes of the land. That's Jeremiah 33, 11. Hosea 6, 11. Also, O Judah, there's a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people. Joel 3, 1. This is the final battle at the end of the parousia, the end of the 70th week of Daniel. God's going to bring all the nations against Jerusalem. And there he's going to do what? He's going to restore the fortunes of Judah. Notice Malachi 4.6, the very last prophecy in your entire Old Testament. Here the prophet Malachi, remember I talked about Malachi 4.1 and 2, that you and I are going to be our resurrected bodies, we're going to be given that, we're going to be frolicking like little calves from the stall, remember that? Well, notice how it talks about the restoration of the hearts 
of the fathers to their children. The restoration here is the hearts of the fathers to their children is probably a reference to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the children will have the same faith that they do. That's probably what's being referred to there. There's going to be a restoration of the covenant, restoration of Israel, restoration, 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 all over the Old Testament. Lo and behold, Jesus teaches his disciples for 40 days in his resurrected body. And what's the conclusion they come to? Acts 1.6, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Where did, he, where did they get that goofy idea? And so I have some Johnny-come-lately eschatology? You do? Or is it amillennialism and postmillennialism? That's the Johnny-come-lately eschatology. Yeah. I think it's the latter. Yeah. Brothers and sisters, there's a restoration for Israel. And the good news as we close here in prayer is that no matter what we see today happening, and it's so sad for those who are undergoing I saw a woman last night, many of you seen her take captive by these monsters of Hamas. It's, it's horrific, and we need to pray. But the, the good news is one day it's going to be done. There'll be no more warfare. There'll be literal a restoration in the kingdom to Israel because Christ will reign, the greatest warrior of all time. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these promises. We thank you that they're literal, that we can believe in them. We know that our promises are assured. We do pray for the peace of Jerusalem. I pray for their military, Lord. I pray that you would strengthen them, give them wisdom. I pray that you'd bring them to faith, Lord. We pray that you would return. We do pray that your kingdom would come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Lord. I pray for Bob as he teaches us out of 1 Corinthians 9. We thank you, Lord, for his work in this, and we pray that we would have ears to hear that we'd be those who live out the words that we learn so that we may live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.